something, I guess we should see it through and finish it, rather than leaving it. We could leave it till next week, though, couldn't we? We're nearly halfway through, and uh, do other things in the meantime. But uh, there's a lot here, and I do think it's good to have it all connected uh, and, and go ahead and finish it. We've gotten through some of the difficult parts. There's still some ahead in terms of the strength and seriousness of the message, and yet on the other hand, uh, about nine, ten chapters of where we are here, it gets a lot more positive uh, and inspiring and encouraging. Anything that's worth having or worth doing is worth fighting for, worth working at. I think that's something we just simply have to keep in mind. Uh, we want to be in God's kingdom and live forever in peace, happiness, and health and righteousness and uh, well-being and all the things that God promises. Isn't it worth a little effort on our part to become what we ought to be, to be kings and priests? You know, with, on this earth, they start when a child of royalty is very young indoctrinating them on what they need to do to become a king and just a worldly monarchy. If that child is in the line of the monarchy whatsoever, he gets very intense training. And even if they're just part of the royal family and aren't going to perhaps in this physical life be a king or a queen, <clears throat> they still have to represent the royal family. So even those who are not in the royal line, except maybe way down at four, five, six, eight people die, still get very intense training. It's what's required to carry the requirements that a, an earthly monarch needs in our society today. Now, the culture and society requires things of them that perhaps we don't need, but there are things that we do need. We just heard a, a report on the debates. I didn't need to tune in and listen to the lies, I guess. Somebody else did that for me. But they have the things they think are important for them to do, to stay in office. And lies and deceit and false promises are a great deal of that. We have something different here. We have a standard to live by, which is honesty, integrity, honor. And all those things which are true and genuine. And of course, they all go against the grain of human nature. Unselfish. There are a lot of things we could talk about. The fruit of God's Spirit is exposed to the works of the world, or the works of the flesh. So let's go to Isaiah 30. <clears throat> we had a positive close on chapter 29, showing that those who did not worship in spirit and attitude, or in spirit and in truth, as John 4.24 states, will come to that point. Doing the right things with the right attitude is what God is concerned about. Now let's go to chapter 30 and pick the story up there. It says, even though understanding and a right attitude will come for a remnant of his people, he says, in contrast to that, woe to the rebellious children, says the Eternal, that take counsel, but not of me will go anywhere else for guidance, for help, for strength, for direction than to God. There always have to be others who have solutions. 
Do we not think that there are enough scriptures here that if we would follow them, our finances would be better? That there are principles in here about saving and not wasting that if followed would make our financial picture look a whole lot better? Aren't there health guidelines in here that followed carefully that would make our health better? But we like to live the way we want to live in whatever facet of our life you're talking about. And then when we get in trouble, we like to run on our knees, maybe, and pray to God. But he's not interested in hearing why we got in trouble doing worldly solutions. So they'll seek counsel everyone everywhere but of me, and then maybe when they're in trouble, they come running. Although that is not in here, that part. And they cover with a covering, but not of my spirit. They cover, they hide, they do what they want to do, and try to sweep it under the rug. So they have a covering, but the covering isn't God's spirit. We have a rebellious attitude toward anything in God's word. We try to cover that so that others can't see it, and more importantly, in one sense, that we don't see it. So often, we don't want to face what we need to face. The whole world basically is in denial, saying that everything is going to be okay and that we are going to evolve into something better than we are, if they admit that we have any faults at all in the first place. And we tend to cover ours from ourselves in self-deceit. So they cover it with a covering, but not of God's Spirit, because God's Spirit does what? His Spirit reveals. His Spirit uncovers. So if someone is concealing from you, or particularly something from themselves, then they're not motivated by the Spirit of God, they're motivated by carnality. That doesn't mean we need to all go out and confess all of our sins to each other. That would not help or strengthen us, but we can admit that we are not what we ought to be, but of ourselves. We need to be very honest, very outright, and get out of denial, because we tend, some, some faults we might admit, but there are other things that are dear to our hearts that we simply want to deny. God says there's no room for that. You can't hide, disguise, or deceive the self, or you won't grow. And if we don't grow and we don't overcome, where will we be when the resurrection occurs? To him that overcomes shall sit with me in my throne. Tells that to all seven of the churches. Everyone has a chance, no matter how bad their problems are. But he tells them, he lays it out in Revelation 2 and 3, these are your problems, these are your problems, these are your problems. Admit them, confess them, overcome them. Verse 2, that walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked at my mouth. They'll look at the options in front of them and decide to go the way of this society. Egypt is symbol, symbolic of our society today, as is Babylon. If you find yourself going the way that society is going, you need to do a very fast, deep check 
on your motivations. Israel was showed a way out of Egypt, but Israel tended to balk. And they got a little ways out in the desert and said, Oh my, that I could go back to the leeks and onions of Egypt. Even slavery and having to make bricks without straw was better than wandering in this desert. So I hear an echo on that. I've heard comments like that, especially at first. I don't hear them so much anymore out here. We've sort of settled into the desert, and perhaps we've gotten past murmuring and griping and complaining, I hope. Although I did hear that some of the kids were telling the other kids who were here visiting that you don't want to come here, you don't want to come out to this awful place, or words to that effect. If you've got a bad attitude, why not just keep it to yourself? Why discourage others who might have a desire? So they don't ask at God's mouth, but they go the way of the sinful world. To strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. We like to trust in today's culture and society. We like to follow its ways and means and customs, its methods. Someone even commented to me yesterday that it's a rat race out there. And if you're going to succeed in a rat race, you have to act like a rat. But if you try to deal honestly and fairly and give true weight and measure, um, you have trouble because the rats don't like that. They want to cheat and steal, and they want you to do the same so it doesn't show them up or cut into their profits if you do it right. So your competitors won't like that. Well, that's all right. Maybe you won't make as much money as they do, but then on the other hand, God won't say, I couldn't tell the difference between the rats. wouldn't want him to do that. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame, and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. What happened to Pharaoh? What happened to Egypt and society? It was absolutely, totally destroyed. And Egypt has never been a power in the world since. That is how absolutely devastating those plagues on Egypt were and on the killing of the young men and the leadership. It has never risen again. And that's exactly what's going to happen to our society and culture. We might as well get used to that idea, and we need to buy into that idea, but it's all going away. The things that are popular, the things that are exciting, the things that this world seems to have to offer that can look good, taste good, smell good, feel good, are simply going away. If they're going away, maybe we ought to get rid of them. Because if we don't get rid of them, we may go away with them. Because God is going to wipe these things out. Our society has had it. It's over. It will be very shortly. And if it is still, if he, if you still look like it, you know, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, maybe it's a duck. 
God starts sorting out those whom he considers worthy to escape, and they had better not look like or act like, smell like a Babylonian. Or they may get left behind. If God can't tell the difference between us and Egypt, between us and Sodom and Gomorrah, beneath, between us and the Hittite and the Amorite, as he says, I think, in Ezekiel 16, if, he, if we all look like them, we've had it. And I don't care where you are, you won't make it. Being in this group, though we have, I think, a lot of understanding we didn't have a few years ago, is not going to guarantee anything. If we heard the call to go to the place of safety, and you said, man, I'm with the right group, I'm going with them, I suspect you'd fall and break your leg if God didn't want you there. Things would get beyond your control. I guess we better be careful what we quack like and act like. God needs to see a clear-cut difference between us and this world. That's something I keep driving at in this, that, or the other thing in specific. But we need to understand this principle. We have to look very different. We have to act very different. We have to be very different. Otherwise, he'll lump us in. And that's where most of the church is going. So, if you depend on this world and this society and this culture and the things in it, you're going to have the same result that Pharaoh had. He was drowned in the sea. For his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Haines. I didn't look those up, but they could only come so far, and they were cut off. They were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them, nor be in help nor profit, but a shame and also a reproach. And when they were first delivered, what did they do? They sang the song of Miriam. They, they were so excited, so happy to have escaped Egypt. And they looked down on Pharaoh and his soldiers. And they were ashamed of that people who had enslaved them, but could not profit them. But that faded, and they began to want those things that they had come out of. I think this is something that we need to realistically look at today. Because God, in his mercy, has begun to separate us away. He showed us scriptures that indicate to us we need to separate away from this world. And if we don't, we'll be held accountable for the knowledge that God has given any knowledge you have, God holds you responsible for. He can link at ignorance, but once he's removed the ignorance, then we have no more protection, do we? We have to perform. That's just the bottom line. And we need to not deny that, but we need to recognize it and not deceive ourselves, realizing that God can see through all the baloney, and he knows what's in the heart and mind. And he knows when we deceive ourselves and when we try to deceive others. 
Verse 6, the burden of the beasts of the south into the land of trouble and anguish, from whence come the young and old lion, the viper and fiery uh, flying serpent, all the, the things that will hurt you that this world has. They don't maybe look like they'll hurt you. What, what do a lot of these computer games that people are so excited about have in them today? They have young and old lions, vipers, and fiery flying serpents. In other words, all kinds of evil, strange-looking things that come on the screen that they're battling and trying to kill all the time. Is that something we need to be involved in? They will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young asses and their treasures upon the bunches of camels to a people that shall not profit them. We can let our feelings, our emotions, our interests, our attitudes, our time go to things that will not profit us. In the long run, what profit is there in them? Wasted time. We're supposed to be redeeming the time, according to Thessalonians, I guess it is. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. This society can give you a veneer of success and a veneer of happiness in things and materiality. And if we buy things, we feel happy for a little bit until reality catches up and then we have to buy other things to make us happy. That's the cycle that parents allow children to get in. Let's buy them something to keep them happy. And then when they're not happy with that, they go from an emotional high to an emotional low, then let's go buy them something else to make them happy. So we have this all the time. Buying things that can never make us happy. Because things can't make you happy. But isn't that what the world says? If you buy this new car, you'll be happy. If you'll buy this light beer, you'll be happy. If you'll buy this style of jeans, you'll be happy. If you buy this, that, and the other thing, you'll be happy. And you might get an emotional high. But how long does it last? I've seen a lot of miserable people in fine homes with fine cars and everything that money will buy. And they're miserable. And they go through divorces. And it doesn't seem that they found happiness in that. There are just as many suicides, maybe more, just as many rebellious children, maybe more. They have better access to drugs and alcohol and toys and things that simply cannot satisfy. For the Egyptians shall help in vain, and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this, their strength is to sit still. They're not going anywhere. This society is not going anywhere. It's going downhill, maybe, but it's not going anywhere positive. And pretty soon, God is going to destroy it. Because there's, there's no plan, there's no purpose, there's no goal. It's just, let's enjoy the moment. Let's be gratified for the moment. Let's get a high, whatever it takes to create that. Whether it's a drug, a bottle, uh, a thing we buy, let's get a high. And if we're high, we're okay. But does it take us anywhere? 
America does not have a goal, it does not have a purpose, it does not have a plan. We're not headed anywhere now. We used to be. We used to have a plan to develop the West, or we used to have a plan to develop uh, an industrial base. America doesn't have a plan anymore. We plan to get a job that will pay the rent and buy pizza tonight. That's about as far as most people's plans go. Without vision, the people perish. We have somewhere to go. We're in training to be kings. We're in training to be priests. And God says that we need to be trained in helping the people to have a spirit and an attitude of service and giving, whether we receive anything in return or not. We are to have just weights and measures, fair prices, decency, honesty, in everything we do. See, that's the training that is required to be a king and a priest. It isn't training in having just the right clothes or wearing your crown just right or whatever the monarchies of this world might do. It is training in honesty, honor, integrity, faithfulness, service, giving, and love. When these people come out of the Great Tribulation and the seven last plagues, the miserable, pitiful few that do are going to be naked and hungry and thirsty, homeless, and they're going to need caregivers. They're going to need people who are willing to help pitch in and do help them do for themselves. Will we be too busy enjoying being God to help them? You know, I have everything I want. Why should I bother with them? The attitude of service and giving has to start here and now. So that when we are given kingship, we'll have the right attitudes. Or we won't be given kingship. Verse 8, he tells Isaiah, Now go, write it before them in a book, and note it, or in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come, forever and ever. He says, write this down, because this is going to be something that goes on and on and on. It will never get stale or old. In other words, throughout history, it would always remain the same. The people would go to the wrong place for the answers and not to God. This is something to be written down, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the eternal. They'll find a way around God's statutes, ordinances, and laws. If it's something they don't want to do, they'll find a way around it. Which say to the seers, to those, well, a seer is someone who should be able to see. And some people claim that they can see into the future, or they're clairvoyant and can see all things and see what's going to happen in your life. That's the wrong kind of seer. That's demonism. Which say to those who should have vision, let's say, see, which say to the seers, see not. Don't tell us the truth. 
And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, but speak to us smooth things, lie to us. Tell us everything's just fine and going to be all right. I hope you don't want to hear that. And if you do want to hear that, I hope you'll repent of it. But if you don't repent of it, I hope you'll go away and find somebody who will preach to you what you want to hear. Because if that's what you want to hear, you're in the wrong chair in the wrong place. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Don't want to hear what God has to say. Just leave me alone. I'm okay. Don't rock the boat. I'm afraid that's where most of the church is today. They don't want the boat rocked. They don't want to hear that they might have something wrong. They want to stick to what they already believe. Or they will use the pitiful excuse, Herbert Armstrong didn't see it that way, or say it that way, or restore it that way, therefore it can't be right. Was Herbert Armstrong the one through whom the truth was once delivered? Not at all. The truth is this book. This was delivered through Moses and the apostles and the other writers of the Bible. They were the ones to whom God went specifically and expressly. God would go to Moses and say, write these things down. He went to Isaiah and said, here's a vision, write it in this book and write it on tables. He inspired, guided, and led those men to deliver this truth. And he went to them directly or by spirit and opened their eyes to see what to write in this book. Herbert Armstrong merely read what was in this book. Did God give him any new truth? No. He showed him the old truths that were in the book. But he didn't show him all the old truths that were in the book. So when we find that the book says something different than Herbert Armstrong or any other man says, then we have to do what the book says. This is the faith once delivered. To Herbert Armstrong, it was secondhand, not first or once delivered. He got it secondhand from Moses and Paul and Luke and John and James and Peter and the others. That's where he got it. When I open this book and start reading it, it's not once delivered to me. It's in here. I'm second. I'm not first. But we better pay attention to what this book says. They don't want to hear it. They'll say, it's too hard. It's too hard. I can't do that. Well, you know, we all have the same problem. Everything that we read in here is too hard for us. It's too hard for me. 
So my only option, if I want to hear what God has to say, is get on my knees and say, God, give me the spirit of understanding, the spirit of obedience, the spirit of willingness, the yieldedness to you and to your word that I might react spiritually instead of carnally. Because it is only by his spirit, not by might, not by power, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the eternal. That's the only way we're going to do it. So if you find that you feel overwhelmed and you can't do it, you just got honest with yourself, didn't you? So you get on your knees and you go to God who can. And by his spirit, we can overcome. won't be able to do it on your own. Whatever problems you're facing, you can't do it on your own. That's just will worship. Oh, I can do this. No, you can't. You've got to go to God. You've got to cry out. God can help us overcome anything. But I think one of the biggest barriers we face in overcoming is, A, admitting that we have a problem, and B, wanting to overcome it. It's hard to admit we have a problem in the first place, and then once we go that far, it's very hard to get ourselves to the point we want to overcome it. Well, where we find ourselves so often is, I wish I wanted to overcome that. I wish I wanted to overcome that. But I don't really. And that's one of the main reasons we can't. Sometimes you have to get on your knees and ask God for the desire to overcome something. Because it isn't in you. It is not in man to correct his paths or to guide his own feet. It just isn't in him. The Proverbs say. We tend to reserve back for ourselves certain things. Some things you might overcome fairly easily because, oh, that, that one's expendable. But there might be a thing or two or three or five that's very near and dear to your heart that you don't want to give up. And you know, on some level, you need to do it. So you wish you wanted to. You've got to come to the point you want to. And that's something to pray for. That should be a part of our prayer. Father, give me the desire to overcome this. Otherwise, God's Spirit is fighting against your nature, and you're determined that your nature is going to win. There's no room there for God to work until you change the attitude then he can work. Don't tell us about God. This is too hard. I, I like it comfy. Wherefore, because of this attitude, wherefore, thus says the Eternal One, or the Holy One of Israel, because, here's cause and effect, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and stay on that, or keep that, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you as a breach, ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Be it the church, or be it the physical nation. Both threads fit this principle. This 
uncleanness, this desire to do our way, this desire, don't tell me about God, is going to come suddenly in a way that you cannot deny God. He is going to put the pressure on until you are either dead or accept him. He has stated already, every knee will bow to me. Every knee. And any knee that will not willingly bow will simply be broken. A broken knee will not hold you up. It will mean Guaranteed. And it's going to come suddenly. God will let it go on and on and on in the carnality, in the humanity, and the unwillingness to do his way is going to lean and lean and lean like the Tower of Pisa, and suddenly it will fall. And he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces. Potter decides something is not what it ought to be, and he doesn't like it. He throws it on the floor in the clay pile, and it shatters. It's the way God's going to do this society. He shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it a share to take fire from the hearth, or to take water with all out of the pit. It's going to be broken so fine that if you put water on it to try to put it back together, or to fire it in the furnace, it won't work. Too broken, too beaten into fine pieces. For thus says the eternal God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. If we would simply obey God in rest and confidence and quietness that everything would turn out right, if we would in patience wait and grow and overcome, everything would turn out right. But he says we won't. We're restless. We want to do this. We want to do that. We want to do something else. We don't want to do his way. But you said, no, for we will flee upon horses. We'll get away from the trouble. Somehow we'll escape. Therefore shall you flee, and we will ride upon the swift. Therefore shall they that first pursue you be swift. You can try to get away, but they're going to have swift horses too. If you're doing this on your own, let's talk even about a place of safety again. If you're doing it on your own, they'll overtake you. They're faster than you. If God is your rear guard, if God's taking care of you, the earth will open and swallow them up. It's that simple. You can't. You can run, but you can't hide. You can't hide from this world because it'll come after you, and you certainly can't hide from God. He'll come after you, but one or the other is going to get you. So the only option we have is to listen to the hard sayings of God and respond to him and do what we need to do. I know in our minds, like Paul, we want to, but we find a war in our bodies. Warring against the Spirit. Warring for the flesh. Tough battle. Daily battle. Tough battle. We just got to get serious with ourselves and say, flesh... You shall not prevail. It's just not going to happen.
They that pursue you will be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one. At the rebuke of five shall you flee. Until you be left as a beacon upon the top of a mountain and, and as an ensign on an hill. The world is going to pursue God's people until there's only a few left as a beacon on a hill and a strong ensign to God. The rest will be overtaken. And therefore will the eternal wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. So, God's people are going to start fleeing before the new world order. Because once it's instituted, it's coming after anything that smacks of God whatsoever. And there's no getting away. And all that's going to be left when they get through is the few that are on the hill as an ensign before the whole world, the ones who waited and trusted on God, it says here. Verse 19, For the people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. But he's going to bring us to the point that we are safe and we won't have anything to weep about. He will be very gracious to you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. Now, doesn't that sound like Isaiah 58, if we'll do the things that are necessary, and fasting is one of them, and we fast with the right attitude so that we might learn to serve and give and help and become like Christ? If we do that, then he'll hear us. We'll be the healers of the breaches. And though the Eternal give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner any more, but your eyes shall see your teachers. The church is going around looking for teachers today, looking for leadership. Can't find it. Scarce, hard to find. This isn't just a millennial scripture. We always read it at the Feast of Tabernacles about the millennium. But God is going to give a true ministry, true teachers, at the end of this age. See, we'll still be being pursued, but God says, if you hang on, you'll be saved. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk you in it, when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. I ask a question here. Will there be government, if this is a millennial scripture only, will there be government in the millennium? Well, there will be kings and priests. Isn't that a governing uh, situation is not the word I wanted, a, a, a governing, oh well, the word will come. Won't there be government? Yes, there will. Will it be from the top down? Yes, it will. Father, the Son, the Bride, and those who might be physical leaders on the earth. And there will be somebody that will tell you what to do. So many people today say, no one's going to tell me what to do. That is an intransigent, intransigent, carnal, human attitude. God hates pride. He hates ego. He's looking for humility and meekness and for people who will be instructed. Looking for people who will be easily entreated, isn't he? He's looking for those who will not say, Who told you that? 
but those who will say, maybe they got the right guy, maybe I should go repent. He's not going to look for defensiveness. He's going to look for people who will not make excuse, but are willing to face and admit their problems. It says in Proverbs 28:13 that we need to confess and forsake. You see, confess and forsake means quit denying. Come out of denial. Confess what the problem is. Face it. Admit it. Get it. Then forsake it. God is looking for humility and meekness, and he's looking for it now. If you don't find it now, you won't be there then. That's what it amounts to. I did a series of articles in the Forerunner a few years back when I was with CGG, and it was entitled, I Love Government. I think I've mentioned it to you, this to you before. I would hope that we would read those articles at some point. But I use a simple analogy of my body. I am so thankful, or at least my feet and my hands are, that I have somewhat of a brain in my head. Now, if I tell my hand to stick itself in the fire and it does it, there's a problem in the body. I said sometimes, I was commuting to work then to the office, and uh, I remember one morning I went in, and I was going to get a cup of coffee, and my hand reached for it, and I wasn't fully awake yet, and what my head said was, finger, hook that cup of coffee and pick it up and bring it to the mouth. But the finger was not very responsive yet. It wasn't fully alert and ready to serve yet. So it stabbed the cup in the wrong place, turned it over, and spilled it all over the floor. Fortunately, I wasn't on my way to work yet, driving a car, and I told my hand, turn the car right, and it went straight and ran into somebody. Good thing to wake up and get the whole body astir and awake and ready to respond before you give it orders. Otherwise, it's liable to mess up. My hands and my feet are thankful that I have a head and eyes so that I can look at the ground and see where to step. I've come down mountains in the dark and nearly killed myself a few times because there were rocks I couldn't see. There were holes I couldn't see. And I was sort of feeling my way down like a blind man in the dark in a boulder field. I prefer it when my eyes can see and they can tell my feet, they can pass a message to my brain, and my brain can tell my feet, go over here, go over there. Don't step there. And if my feet are responsive and yielding and humble, they will go where the brain tells them to go. Now, it's not just the brain, though, not just the very head, but the brain is connected to nerves and muscles. Sinews, tendons, and those have to carry the message. The brain has an excitement factor. It excites that nerve system, and the nerve has to travel down, and it's actually the nerve which delivers the message to the foot. So there's an intermediary. 
a middleman. And that's what we face in government. Now, a family has to work that way. Your family is somewhat dysfunctional, and there isn't respect of the father from the mother. There isn't respect for either one from the children. It's a breakdown in government. It's what it is. Because of the way things are handled. You see, God in the church appointed apostles, evangelists, prophets, teachers, ministers, pastors, and so on, to guide, to lead, to direct, to teach his word. But let's break this thing down and understand how it works. We come and hear God's word. We say some of it wasn't God's word, some of it was the preacher's opinion. And we talk about that, we go home, and for dinner we have roast preacher, let's say. It's on the menu fairly often on Saturday nights. We go home and we have roast preacher. And the kids are sitting around listening to the adults gripe about the ministry, or gripe about the preacher, or gripe about what was said. And they, there's something that happens in their minds and emotions. may not even know it consciously, but subliminally at least. Sometimes they know it consciously, or if it gets too bad, they know it. But on some level, they're going to hear you complaining about those whom God has placed over you, and they figure it's certainly okay for them to complain about you. You are telling them by the things you are saying that that's okay. And it begins to break down. The father says something, and the mother contradicts, because they don't believe in government. And the children then get a mixed signal between the father and the mother, because the mother won't back the father. So the kids say, I don't have to back the father either. But the mother's doing herself in, because the child will also say, also say, well, if I don't have to respect the dad and she doesn't, then I don't have to respect her either. And that's how the government of the family breaks down. If you have disrespectful children, it's not their fault. It's your fault. They got that attitude from listening to you. Because if you don't believe in government, or if you believe in it but don't follow it, you are going to have disrespectful, dysfunctional family members in front of the children. You should never talk down the ministry or the sermon. If you disagree with it, you should go to the one who gave it and talk to them about it. Get it resolved at the highest possible level. If you don't, you're going to destroy your own family. If the mother disagrees with the father, or the father with the mother, 
They should never discuss it in front of the children. The father should back the mother. I mean, the mother should back the father, no matter how ridiculous he's acting, in front of the children. And the father should respect the mother, no matter how badly she's acting, in front of the children. And then they should go alone and get the problem straightened out so that they show uniformity in front of those who are there. See, if you disagree, you need to go to the one above you and get it straightened out. If you have problems in your family, it's because you are not following this procedure. It's that clear and simple. God believes in government. And if you're going to be in God's kingdom, you're going to have to learn to love government. Wouldn't it be awful to have to live for eternity with sour grapes against the top guy all the time? Wouldn't it be better to get it resolved solved, and never be a problem again. See how it broke down? Satan began to get a little egocentric and vain and think, I have as good answers as God does. Okay. Yeah, I have better answers than he does. The more I think about it, back to business, I think I'm as pretty as he is. But one more look. I think I'm prettier than he is. And he infected those below him with the same attitude. He became rebellious, and those under him became rebellious, because he showed his rebellion and expressed his attitude in front of them. What was the result? One third of the angels became rebellious, disrespectful to God, and joined in an attack at calling God a jerk, among other things. And one-third of the angels, holy angels of God, though they were, they did not respect government, and as a result, they are going to be in misery, frustration, dejection, and solitary confinement forevermore. You see, when you want self-rule, with no one there to tell you what to do, what do you do? You begin to isolate yourselves from family. You begin to isolate yourself from friends. And you're doing it to yourself. Because you won't listen to what they say, so you withdraw. A kid will want to withdraw to their room. They'll want to withdraw to other friends. And then if their other friends diss them, then they want to withdraw from those friends. Find some different friends. And if they put them down, pretty soon they're all alone. Solitary confinement. Self-caused. Now, I believe in self-government. Don't get me wrong. Each and every one of us should govern himself. No one can live your life for you. No one, in essence, in the long run, can tell you what to do. God gave you his word and said, do it. You have to choose if you'll do it or not. I'll read God's word to you, 
And you have to choose whether you will do it or not. It's that simple. If you have excuses or arguments about what I say, they shouldn't go to anyone but me. But you're chicken. You'll take it to someone else whom you think might have the same attitude and approach. Birds of a feather tend to flock together. Why not go to someone with a different attitude instead of someone that you know will agree with you so you can make big medicine? I'll tell you, in the long run, it'll hurt you. It will really, truly hurt you. And some of you are facing severe family problems and maybe you're in denial. It might be time to take a real hard look and take the cover off and accept that God's government is true and right. Now, I understand we saw abuses and misuses. I understand that. But we've got to move past it and we've got to do it right. Okay? We've got to do it right. There is room for mercy. There's room for compassion. There's room for patience. And we need a climate in which we can grow if we wish to. But I'll tell you what. Meekness and humility have to come before that can occur. And that is the lesson that God has paramount in his mind. He wants people who are meek, humble, easily entreated, and willing. And what he is going to have to do to the church, which he's already started, and the world, which he's about to start, are unbelievably powerful, awful, horrible things. But for most people, that's what it's going to take to get them to be humble and meek. That's his whole purpose, is to make them humble and meek. Not self-justifying, not self-deceiving, not just self-believing. But when they're ready to listen, he will stop the carnage and intervene. Then he will teach his ways. This is going to start, verses 20 and 21, in this age with the church. And then it is going to continue into the millennium. This, these two verses are for both. And he's humbling the church today. He's getting people to the point that some of them will begin to truly listen to his word and those whom he sent to teach him. And if they don't, they're going to the tribulation and they'll be humbled like the rest of Israel will be humbled, physically. We either humble ourselves, or God will humble us. Take your pick. Verse 22, You shall defile also the covering of the graven images of silver and the ornament of the molten images of gold. All your gods you're going to uncover. You're going to strip bare what they really are. You shall cast them away as a menstruous cloth. You shall say to it, get you hence. There's going to come a time, God says, when we'll dump our idols. We'll become meek and humble 
and get rid of those things that hold us back that are so near and dear to our hearts. Then shall he give the rain of your seed that you shall sow the ground withal, and bread of the increase of the earth, and it shall be fat and plenteous. In that day shall your cattle feed in large pastures. Is it any wonder why God always has historically sent his people into the desert? So that they were without, and that they were hot, and miserable, and sand in their eyes and teeth? He's always done that to see if they would become humble and meek, responsive and yielded to him. And then he has blessed them. Just the way he does it. And he's brought us to a place like that. Don't you think he could have given us meadows and pine trees and crystal clear brooks and soil that would grow anything you put in it and sufficient rain that it would grow? He could have. Just as easily as he gave us this rabbit grass and sage flat. It's no big deal to him. He could have done it either way. The reason he gave us this is because we needed it. And it'll stay this way until we were humble, yielded, and meek, and ready to be entreated, and taught, and guided, and led. And then, he will give us blessings. Verse 24, the oxen likewise and the young asses that ear the ground shall eat clean provender, which has been loaded with a shovel and with a fan, and there shall be upon every high mountain and upon every high hill rivers and streams of water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. What he's telling me there is those who become meek and humble and throw away their idols of this world are going to begin to be blessed even as the slaughter goes on and the towers are falling. This is premillennial. He is going to bless his faithful, true people who have humbled themselves even as the slaughter and the carnage goes on. Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Eternal binds up the breach of his people and heals the stroke of their wounds. Remember in Revelation where it talks about the sun being seven times hotter? That's before the millennium. And he's saying here that he is going to bless his people. He's going to heal our wounds and bind up our breaches when the world is being torn apart. You see, our breaches and our carrying are happening now. We are to be humbled now, and those who will respond are going to be blessed in ways that you would not believe when the rest of the world is going through hell on earth. That's what this is saying. Behold, the name of the Eternal comes from far, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue is a devouring fire, and his breath is an overflowing stream, shall reach to the midst of the neck, to sift the nations with a sieve of vanity. 
They want to be vain. They want to be egocentric. They want to stand up against God, against his word. Look what's coming against that. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err, to make mistakes. They didn't turn to God, and they're going to make all the wrong choices. And they're going to be destroyed. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy solemnity is kept. And gladness of heart. See the contrast again. He's talking about terrible destruction, and he says, we're going to be singing in the heights of Zion in another place. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy solemnity is kept. Be singing like we do when Israel went out of Egypt at Passover. We'll be safe and singing praises to God while this horrible anger is being visited on the rest of the world and physical Israel. The blessing will return to us ahead of time. And gladness of heart is when one goes with a pipe to come into the mountain of the Lord, to the mighty one of Israel, like playing bagpipes before God with joy and happiness when he's destroying everything else. You think meekness and humility is important or not? Being able to be taught? And the Lord shall cause his glorious voice to be heard, and shall show the lighting down of his arm, with the indignation of his anger, and with the flame of a devouring fire, with scattering and tempests and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord shall the Assyrian be beaten down with smoke with a rod. So, first of all, during the time of trouble, we, if we are a faithful remnant, will be protected. And then God is going to turn his anger on the Assyrian which symbolizes the new world order at the end, and deliver those people who will, be, will have been humbled by the Assyrian. So it's twofold. Our blessing comes first, and their blessing comes after. Our resurrection comes first, and theirs comes after. And in every place where the grounded staff shall pass, which the Eternal shall slay upon him, it shall be with tabrets and harps, and in battles of shaking will he fight with it. For Tophet is ordained of old. What does that mean? If you look up Tophet back in 2 Kings 23.10, it's talking about the children of Israel sacrificing their children to Molech, and Josiah tearing it all down. So it's talking about the destruction of idols, a false practice. It's going to be torn down. God's going to come against it and stop it. For Tophet is ordained of old. What happened there will happen again. Yes, for the king is it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. The pile thereof is fire and much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, does kindle it. Now let's go on. I have some time here. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Woe to them that turn anywhere but to God, okay? And stay on horses and trust in chariots. America will try to defend itself. How much good will that do? None. God has ordained that it will fall. Just as he's ordained that the church will fall. And it's been falling, and it will continue to fall. Because they are very strong. I mean, you can look at these things and think, boy, those are very strong. 
but they look not to the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Eternal. God, remember, said in chapter 8, Don't fear them, fear me. That's our fear, is God. He's the one that holds the key to life and death, blessing and cursing. Yet he also is wise and will bring evil, and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers, and against the help of them that work iniquity. God won't relent. He's going to do this thing. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horse is flesh and not spirit. Spirit can overcome flesh. There's a lesson there for us. The Spirit of God, if we call on it, can overcome the desires of the flesh. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helps shall fall, and he that helps shall fall down, and they shall all fail together. When God sets his hand, no, no man can stand. That's just bottom line. For thus has the Eternal spoken to me, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him. He will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. The lion sits back in his pride and strength. You know, it's, it's hard to scare a hungry lion away. In Africa, they have built up great walls of brambles, thick, 10, 12 feet high, and have men inside with spears and guns, and the lion would still come in. You've probably seen that movie, What is it, Ghosts in the Night, about the lions. I've seen the lions. Two of them are stuffed in the Museum of, Museum of Natural History in Chicago. That was something, that was the name of it, wasn't it? Close to that, about the two lions that they couldn't get. You can send a bunch of shepherds, but they're not afraid. You never know about a lion. Sometimes they'll wander away, and sometimes they just come. It just depends on their attitude at the moment. It's not that they're afraid of you, necessarily. They just do what they want to do. They're cats. To a dog, I'm lord and master. To a cat, I'm staff. Please do as I ask. It's their attitude. Well, God's going to come like a lion that will not be deterred. He will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. You make all the noise you want, but sometimes a lion just decides he's going to attack it. It doesn't matter. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. Remember those scriptures we read earlier about how the Assyrian would come and shake his fist against us? God says he's coming down to Mount Zion and he's going to fight for it. Hey, what more do you need? Those who have been meek and humble and accounted worthy are going to be protected and God's going to come down on Mount Zion and fight for that hill. I remember seeing newsreels of the Korean War, Second World War, well, not Second World War, I don't remember that, Korean War in Vietnam, and they're always trying to take a hill, right? They have the hills numbered in Korea. I'm going to take hill number 23 today. Well, God is going to come down and fight for the hill upon which Zion is planted. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. 
Defending also, he will deliver it, and by passing over, he will preserve it. He uses the analogy of birds. Have you ever been near a bird's nest? And some birds are really cantankerous. They will die upon you and attack you and drive you away from their nest. They get very persistent about it. And God says, I'm going to be just like those birds. And I think it's interesting, he says, in passing over, he will preserve it. There may be sort of a dual analogy there. But it's passing over, he'll fight for you. At the same time, he's passing over your sins, as he did back in Egypt. Turn you to him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted, both church and nation. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, throw them in the street. And those are only symbolic of our personal idols, the greatest of which is self. What idol do you defend the most? Your self-esteem, your self-worth, your way. Your sin. That's what you defend the most. Now, once in a while, we'll defend somebody else if somebody attacks them. But mostly, we'll defend ourselves. Because we are our greatest idol. So we'll be casting that away and becoming meek and humble. We'll cast away the idols our hands have made for a sin. Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man... And the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him. There won't be a great army. How did God do it before? We're going to read about Hezekiah here in a little bit. In Sennacherib and how the Assyrian came. And how in one night I think 430,000 died. Just by God giving the word. No army. God's going to take care of this. But he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be discomfited scared spitless, in other words. And he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, says the Eternal, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. There's a pipe there with the church hidden in Zion in Jerusalem. It's a church and it's a physical place. And God has said in Haggai, last verse, that he will send an ensign against the nations a standard-bearer. And it needs to be a human. Because we need to learn to follow whomsoever God sends. We think that we would listen to God himself. But God says if we don't learn to listen to men, we will not have the opportunity to listen to God himself. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. <laughs> if we reject those whom God sends, he will reject us. Therefore, he will use human leadership to both lead the church and to go against the world. And he will give power to give plagues and to kill with fire coming out of their mouths. It's the way God has chosen to do it. Chapter 32. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Once the Assyrian is done, true judgment, right judgment will take over. And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, 
as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Now, in the millennium, there's not going to be a need to take shelter from the wind, is there? Is there going to be need for a covert from the tempest and of raging waters in a dry place like a flash flood coming down the narrows here in Zion? Will there be that need in the millennium? No. When is that needed? First. It's needed when God destroys the Assyrian from before us as, he flee, as we flee from the enemy that Satan sends, from the army. He'll swallow it up in an earthquake. And those who see will run. What's going to happen to the Assyrian? And he says, a man will be as a hiding place from the tempest. Didn't we read that back in chapter 4? Seven women will take hold of one man. God is going to give oil to the church through one is the leader and the second because there have to be two witnesses against both church and world. God always establishes the, something through the mouth of two or three witnesses. So it's not just one, but one will, of course, be the leader, as is always the case. Otherwise, they might fight and argue. God believes in government. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. We'll see that thought uh, emphasized in chapter 35. But in that day, God is going to begin to open ears and eyes, both on a spiritual level and on a physical level. The heart also of the rash, or hothead, I think the living puts it, the heart of the hothead shall understand knowledge. Instead of just emotional reaction, he's going to actually understand what's happening. Emotional reactions come easily based on lack of understanding. The heart of the hothead shall understand knowledge. The tongue of the stammerer shall be ready to speak plainly. Those who sit on the fence, who read here a little, there a little, but couldn't put the story together, as Isaiah 28 says, the vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. Those are words that don't mean a whole lot to us, so I looked it up. The living says, the ungodly will not be heroes, nor the generous cheater spoken of as generous fine men. For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy, saying one thing but doing another, and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The Living translates this, All will recognize the hypocrite for what he is. I think that's pretty good paraphrasing of that verse. The instruments also of the churl uh, are evil, or the tricks and lies will be exposed, is the way Living puts it again. He devises wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks right. But the liberal, or that is 
better translated, I think, ungodly. But the ungodly devises ungodly things. And by ungodly things shall he stand. That's what he's going to stand on. And, of course, it will cause him to fall. Now, what does he tell us when we have those who say one thing and do another? We're full of hypocrisy. Now, all of us have the standard we want to follow, but we all come short of it. And that doesn't daily necessarily make us a hypocrite. It just makes means that we're weak and base and are having trouble following God's ways. But if you know to do good and continually do evil, you become a hypocrite. <clears throat> Rise up, you women that are at ease. <clears throat> what is a woman in biblical prophecy? It's church. Rise up, you churches that are taking it easy, that are thinking everything is okay, that think we really don't have need of anything, we have everything we needed from the faith once delivered to Herbert Armstrong, not understanding that, or whatever their attitude might be in not really working at what needs to be done. What does he tell the faithful remnant again? Be of good courage, be strong, fear not, and work. Work hard. Produce. Do something. And if you do not do those things, you could easily fall into this category of verse 9 of living at ease, or as it says in the first chapter of Zephaniah, resting on your oars. God wants no one resting on their oars. He also uses the analogy in Matthew 25 of ten virgins who all slumbered and slept. Now you're pretty much at ease when you're laid back sleeping. Are you not? Rise up, you women that are at ease. Hear my voice, you careless daughters. Do we approach God's truth and religion carelessly? Do we take it for granted? We were. And look what's happened. Are we still? Look what may happen. Hear my voice, you careless daughters. Give ear to my speech. Many days and years shall you be troubled. Or as my margin says, days of other years shall you be troubled. There may come real serious trouble for something over a year. Don't know about the timing. You careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. You think that you are going to produce good fruits with the work you are doing, and it will fail. The gathering shall not come. You thought that what... The work that you were doing was going to gather lots of people. Won't happen. Tremble, you women, you churches that are at ease. Be troubled, you careless ones. Strip you and make you bare and gird sackcloth upon your loins. All of this righteousness you thought you had is self-righteousness, God says. You think you have everything you need and are in need of nothing. You're well-dressed, ready for the wedding. And God says, strip it all off. Let's see what's really there. What's inside those clothes? Dirt sackcloth upon your loins. Remember what it said back there about mourning and fasting and crying instead of laughing and slaying oxen and having wine and drinking and partying. He emphasizes it here. Dirt sackcloth on your loins. 
They shall lament for the pits, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars. Yes, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city. What has happened to our houses of joy in the church? Our fine congregations. Knocked flat. And they're going to get knocked flat. <clears throat> because the palaces shall be forsaken. Do we have a forsaken auditorium today with weeds growing around it? Being sold to a bunch of oriental weirdos? Yes, we do. Our congregations and our palaces. The multitude of the city shall be left, forsaken, forgotten. The forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a toy of wild asses and a pasture for flocks. The, the things that we thought we were safe in are going to be torn down. We didn't understand enough and we weren't doing enough. And this is going to continue until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. It's going to be this way until God pours his Spirit upon those who will listen. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. God brought us to a physical wilderness to teach us some spiritual lessons. And I think that both the wilderness and the Spirit are going to thrive when God pours out his blessing. God is preparing a place for his faithful. And God does not prepare in vain or halfway. He's going to prepare something worth going to. And it's going to be more than a dung-laden cave somewhere. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. The effect of living righteousness is going to bring peace. The latter temple, he says, and in this place will I bring peace. Not just the millennium, but he's going to bring it beforehand among his faithful. And assurance forever. It's going to be something that once it starts will never go away. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places when it shall hail coming down on the forest and the city shall be low in a low place. Or, as a living translated, when it hails on the Assyries, Assyrians leveling his cities. God is going to be protecting his people at the time God destroys the Assyrian as a result of what they've done to the church spiritually and what they do to the physical nation. Blessed are you that sow beside all waters that send forth thither the feet of the oxen and the ass. God is going to bless those who will work. That's a symbol of work. Planting, harvesting, working. That's why he tells us be of good courage, be strong, fear not, and work. We have work to do. And those who work and yield to God and fulfill his purpose, he is going to bless. Well, we're about out of time on the tape, so let's stop there. I think that's a positive note to close on. <laughs>